0: This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. All right, so today I want to uh, do things a little bit differently. I'm going to start with a breakdown of my new ebook. um, And it's going to be educational. So I don't want you to hear this and think it's going to be a sales promo. Um, Do I want you to buy the book? abso fucking Of course I do. Um, I put a lot of effort into this. I put a lot of content inside of this. And there's a lot of information in here that's just really, really applicable to Literally everybody who buys it everybody who's listening to this podcast and i'm not just saying that but it's extremely diverse and individualized Um, And again auto-regulated That's why it's called built for you so that you can really take all this information and apply it to you your lifestyle your goals your body your training experience your everything your schedule your training routine so on and so forth so um, I want to break down why that is and how I built it because I'm not going to sit here on a podcast for 20 minutes because we are going to do questions So i'm going to start with this and then i'm going to dive into uh, a few questions that I have I actually have three questions that I Specifically picked out um, because I think that they deserve in-depth answers So I know they're going to take me a little bit longer than normal So, uh, but I think it's going to make a great podcast because i'm going to dive into built for you, which is the new ebook It's called built for you the auto-regulated and self-individualized hypertrophy training program so this is a program mainly focused on aesthetics. That's why it's a hypertrophy program. So whether you are looking to build as much muscle as possible, or you are looking to lose fat and you want to like what you see at the end of the road, um, or you are in a contest prep and off season, anything like that. So any aesthetic goal, this is going to be the program for you, but I don't want to just sit here and try to sell you on built for you, which launches on Monday. By the way, the reason I'm doing this now is because you are listening to this on Friday, which is because i record these in advance that would be september 6th and it will launch september 9th on monday um so i will be filling everybody in on monday because you will hear a podcast from me on monday if you're on my newsletter you'll get an email from me if you follow me on instagram you'll see it there i am going to be pushing this quite a bit next week it's going to be on sale and i want everybody to grab it but today i want to discuss what why and how after that i'm going to dive into some questions and just to give you a preview we have one question on the specificity of how i structure macros so what leads me to create the best macros for a specific client Um, we have another question from somebody who is a uh, master's level so um, that would be in the uh higher age range so we're talking 35 plus 40 plus years old um talking specifically about hypertrophy and how to program design that stuff which I think I will somewhat answer um, indirectly when I describe this book, but we're going to dive into that as well. He has two specific questions regarding some research that I want to cover in this. And then we have a third question about hypertrophy-based nutrition following my last podcast on that. So, uh, but first we're going to dive into Bill for you. So I want to spend this time kind of going through the book and explain to you guys what, why, and how not just to get you excited and hyped up to grab this on Monday, but to also teach you because some of you listen to this, like, let's be honest, like not everybody is going to purchase the book. I understand that um, as much as I think you all should. I'm sure there are people listening to this that aren't going to grab the book. Um, If you do not grab the book, I still want you to gain value from the book. And the best way for me to make sure you can do that is for me to try and describe what's inside of it. And with a little bit of education inside that context. So really kind of go into each chapter and explain why i wrote that chapter, why it's prevalent, why it's important um and and how to use it essentially. So um cool, let's start with my training philosophy. So the first chapter is called my training philosophy and that's the hierarchy of aesthetics. So this is something i posted on instagram not long ago. Um and and it really like my whole philosophy on uh training in general and it, it really does apply to nutrition as well. So i would say my whole philosophy on coaching essentially on training and nutrition is taking the evidence to give me a foundation. The evidence gives me a foundation. It gives me a point of view. It gives me an idea of, okay, cool. This is the baseline. This is what we are starting with. This is the information we have to build our knowledge off of. This is where we can kind of go vertical for lack of better terms. Vertical being we have our base. Now let's build up. Um, evidence supports that. Evidence teaches us what volume, intensity, and frequency is. Evidence teaches us what progressive overload is. It teaches us about the minutia inside of muscle fibers and why they grow in our nervous system and how that relates and so on and so forth. But I'm very much an experience-based coach. And what I mean by that is I have a lot of certifications. I've been to a lot of seminars. I've done um, a lot of workshops. I've done so much researching myself and digging into other people's uh, research reviews and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of things that cannot be explained inside of research because a research study won't paint the full picture. Maybe that's because they can't Get the perfect people to participate in it. Uh, maybe that's because they can't carry out the study long enough. Like, there's a lot of eight-week training studies. Eight weeks is great, but fuck, what about 24 weeks? Right? What about actually following a full muscle growth phase? What about following an actual strength block? An actual cut into a contest prep? Which I will say, there is more and more um, research coming out, literally using bodybuilders, and it makes me super excited because it's the most ap- 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 it's the most applicable. Really, it's the most relative study that we could possibly use when learning about maximum levels of aesthetic change, fat loss and hypertrophy, because those are the individuals who are fully committed. Those are the individuals who are advanced lifters. So if somebody comes into a research study and they have been training for a decade, that tells us a lot more about what can happen to a body inside of a study than taking somebody who's brand new and or sedentary and or elderly, which is very common, or using a rat, for example. Um, but my philosophy is really taking the evidence and, and creating my base from that and then using my experience and anecdote over the years of my almost a decade in the gym training and almost a decade of coaching people, I should say, in the gym in and, and in the gym and online, um, writing articles, recording podcasts, filming videos, reading books, uh, going through certification courses, so on and so forth. And, uh, those things that I've noticed over the years that research either a can't explain B can't be done on or C just hasn't quite got there yet. Because let's be real. There's a lot of quote unquote bro science that absolutely fucking works, but we haven't yet created a study around it. Why? Because nobody will fund it there's a lot of good things that uh, there's so many things that I wish we could research. But the reality is, is there's just too many things that won't ever be researched because nobody's going to cough up money to fund it. Um, That being said, my training philosophy kind of goes like this. If I look at the hypertrophy training hierarchy is what I call it. um, This is not saying and actually in my book, I mentioned Eric Helms, uh, Andy Morgan and Andrea Valdez for creating the muscle and strength pyramids, because I think it's a great book. Um, I put that in my resources, not because I used any specific information inside the book from those books, but just because I wanted to give people extra resources. So at the end of the book, I actually give a list of really good places that you can go learn more, educate yourself better through videos, membership sites, research reviews, books, things like that, YouTube channels, stuff like that. Um, But my hypertrophy training hierarchy is a little bit different. Uh, Eric Helms created his. Hierarchy his pyramid of muscle and strength by laying down first and foremost, before we even get into the pyramid, is adherence. And we all know that like adherence is the number one thing. We have to have lifestyle and behavior change in order to successfully adhere to a plan to make sure that it's going to consistently work. Because if you can't stay consistent, what's the point, right? Um, but his goes volume, or I'm sorry, volume, intensity, frequency. Um, and then you know what? I'm gonna look it up because I don't want to butcher this and i have purchased all of his books ebook and hard copy which i recommend every coach has the hard copy because at the end of the day like it's just cool to have that shit on your shelf um, but if we look at the actual pyramid itself, uh, they start with adherence, of course, and then it goes volume, intensity, frequency, then it goes progression, then it goes exercise selection, then it goes rest periods, then it goes tempo. Um, encompassing all this is periodization. Obviously, you have to periodize this approach to an extent because I talk about that in here and I'm going to get into periodization because literature has changed quite a bit around the, the importance of periodization inside of hypertrophy and aesthetic change in general strength is totally different if you want to be as strong as possible a powerful strength athlete um, or an athlete in a competitive sport periodization inside training is much more important than periodization inside of aesthetics and and i'll get into that in a bit but my pyramid is a little bit different i actually start with exercise selection and exercise execution Um, i don't get into tempo i don't get into rest periods because the reality is, is I think that those rest periods are irrelevant, to be honest with you. I think rest periods become very important when A, somebody's getting bored, B, somebody needs to be out of the gym in a timely manner, or C, somebody is going for a metabolic conditioning effect, which is kind of taking out of the realm of aesthetic changes. That's, that goes into sport realms. So if we're strictly talking about body composition change through training, they're not even on my radar because studies show that if your volume and intensity is controlled, that's how you're going to be maximally stimulating growth. However, I prefer to put exercise selection and exercise execution in prior to volume intensity or frequency. The reason for this is because exercise selection and exercise execution are what create effective volume. So if we look at volume as the precursor for growth, the most important thing for growth and intensity as the most important thing for strength, which I would agree with, we have to make sure that what we are doing inside of intensity and volume is actually effective it's actually benefiting us and it's not just fatiguing us without any true adaptation occurring and what i mean by that is let's say for example the barbell stiff leg deadlift stiff leg audio one of my favorite hamstring builders amazing exercise um, i have some clients that it's all low back They don't feel any good stretch. They can't go low enough because for some people you you essentially want to, and this is hard over a podcast, but you essentially want to hip hinge until you get a maximal stretch inside of your glutes and hamstrings while keeping your back neutral. So for some people, they get to just below their knees. For some people, they can go till plates, touch the floor. Some people, they get just above their knees and their low back, their lumbar spine actually starts creating a curve, starts rounding. And that's their limited range of motion. Well, if that's as far as you can go before your core gives out and your back starts to round or as far as your mobility allows without rounding your lower back, you've just taken a stretch based movement. So a movement that primarily works through the stretch phase of the movement to increase hypertrophy. And you've limited it to be a very shitty exercise because you have a limited range of motion. So I have two choices, either a work on mobility and stretching and trying to increase your end range, which could take a week could take six months, we don't know, or I can work on mobility because you probably should, and I can switch the exercise selection so that you actually activate the muscle properly, therefore making that volume better, that volume more effective. So if we take these two scenarios, I take the person doing the RDL and I say, "Hey, keep working on it. Let's build it over time. Let's improve uh, mobility and hopefully we'll create some effective volume out of that. Let's Let's create some muscle activation and create some real damage because right now your range of motion is so shitty. You're getting very minimal out of it, but let's keep doing it okay, cool. So you're still lifting heavy. You're still using grip strength. You're still lifting load period. You're still spending time doing lift or B I can take somebody and say, Hey, we're going to work on mobility. We're going to come back to the RDL in in a few weeks, right? And we'll test it out again. If you're there, you're there. If you're not, we'll wait another few weeks. We're going to keep working on mobility because we always do. We're just going to change it a little bit. And I want you to prioritize the staggered RDL. We're going to go unilateral. I'm going to stagger your stance so you can get a bigger range of motion because we're offsetting your hip. You're not going to round in the, the lumbar because I'm creating a different position. You can't load it as much. However, you can still load it heavy enough to activate the muscle. And we can use half the load and still get as much volume on that single leg since it's a unilateral movement. 200 pounds on an RDL versus 250 pound dumbbells is technically the same thing per leg, right? 100 pounds total weight, but 100 pounds per leg, 200 pounds total weight, 100 pounds per leg what's the difference in these two groups? Group A is doing an exercise that they're getting very little out of, but they're still getting systemic fatigue because their nervous system has to work. It's still volume. Group B is doing less weight, so potentially less systemic fatigue, getting more muscle activation and more range of motion, therefore getting more out of the actual reps while keeping nervous system damage or systemic total fatigue the exact same, if not less. So less stress, easier to adapt from more muscular stress, more muscular activation, therefore better gains, right? So let's just say the stress out of the stress on the body, the nervous system, the joints, everything is exactly the same between the two. But the stress on the muscle is being placed at a higher level in group B, because we are isolating it and we're changing the exercise selection. So now exercise selection becomes way more important than volume, because the volume is actually effective. In a research study, they are using exercises that are probably going to work with the individual. So we don't even talk about exercise selection. Why? Because they're not going to take individuals who have poor mobility, have poor range of motion, have injuries, are sick. They have to be selective with who they can use in a study, which I understand. But this is why we can't take everything with uh, from studies by face value. Have Has research showed us that volume matters? abso fucking It's very important. But experience and working with people hands-on and looking at lifters who are very experienced themselves tells you that exercise selection allows us to have effective volume, which means we can probably grow with less volume than what people may think. And that allows us to save overall stress and fatigue on our body while still achieving maximal results. Um, Same thing with other exercise execution. This is actually, I would couple tempo in this. Sometimes tempo is important because tempo teaches you how to perform exercise better, So combining exercise selection, exercise execution at the bottom of the hierarchy, because that's what allows us to achieve effective volume. After that, we go up into volume and intensity, Um, volume and intensity. So real caveat to exercise execution. I probably shouldn't have skipped over that so quickly. That's the skill behind this. That means you need practice. So when I say exercise selection, I mean, finding what works for you with your biomechanics, which I show you how to do inside this program. That's why it's so valuable. And I give you options within the program so you can actually adjust and individualize a program to fit your specific exercise selection. From there, you have to build the skill of the movement. So then you actually work on the movement itself repeatedly until your exercise execution through things like tempo, through things like exercise excel- uh, selection, and through things like practice, you build better execution and mind muscle connection. Now your exercise execution and selection become one. They're essentially equal on the pyramid and they allow us to have more effective volume and intensity. We know that volume and intensity are the key drivers for any change. I would say they are equal as a whole, but I would say intensity would be higher on the strength pyramid. And I would say volume would be higher on the vol, uh, the hypertrophy hierarchy. So actually building muscle. But in this case, I put them equal because I think they're both important. Um, especially for progression in your physique over time, because you can't, although studies will say you can do any rep range. I do believe there's a lot of merit to changing your rep ranges and doing some low rep training on a regular basis, because I think that Level of strength and neural adaptation allows you to recruit more motor units, which is going to help build more muscle in those higher rep range sets. And it's also going to allow you to get stronger, therefore, lift more in those higher rep sets. So, volume and intensity are equal, but those are the the research based, evidence based drivers. In my heart hierarchy, and in my experience, and a lot of the experience of uh, colleagues of mine, who agree with this and who have a lot of experience, they will say the same exact thing. They will say exercise selection, execution are what allow us to take advantage of the fact that volume and intensity are so important. So those two things come next. In organizing your volume and intensity throughout the week is frequency. So frequency is at the very top of the pyramid because studies will show whether you train one time a week, two times a week, three times a week, per muscle group per week doesn't really matter as long as volume intensity are there. So you can do a bro split as long as you can get your volume. The reason bro splits aren't that advantageous is because it's hard to accumulate enough volume inside of a bro split. Therefore, volume intensity are still first frequency is last because yes, it doesn't matter as much. But it's a very important tool in order to organize our training in order to elicit the greatest change to volume intensity inside built for you. I structure in a way that has the most optimal volume, intensity, and frequency. However, I give you the tools and the essentially the strategies to adjust it based on your stress levels, your biofeedback, your schedule, your goals, so on and so forth. Uh, but the pyramid is simple. Exercise selection, exercise execution are two different categories, but they're equal. Volume and intensity are two different categories, but they're equal. And then frequencies at the top. So there's essentially three levels, five parts of this hierarchy. And in the first chapter, I explain what, why, and how with that. Then I go on to uh, have a full chapter on exercise selection and execution. So what does that mean? Why is it so important? And how do you determine what works best for your biomechanics? I highly suggest you go check out the podcast I did with uh, the hypertrophy coach, Joe Bennett. Um, Really, really good. Smart dude with a lot of experience that has a similar philosophy in the sense of like evidence matters, but so does experience, and he t- touches on that with me a lot um, and then the next one, I go into volume and intensity so there 's a full chapter on my philosophy and why I feel this way there 's a full chapter on exercise selection and execution, and there 's a full chapter on volume and intensity by itself, looking at the research, looking at what matters, going over some of the landmarks that mike Isretel uh built um and kind of my opinion on them, um, which I think they 're great i think it 's one of the best tools in the muscle building world, I'm I'm really thankful for them. I've interviewed most of the people at RP on this podcast, except for Mike. Um, Hopefully he will be in the near future. Um, But I mean, long story short, I I really agree with it. I think uh, maintenance volume, minimum effective volume, maximum adaptive volume, maximum recovery volume is all great ideas. Um, I think they're really helpful. I think the only issue with them is not what they are, but how people are using them. And the reason I say that is because a lot of, I feel like a lot of people, kind of take them and end up going right to MRV. They think, okay, maximum recoverable volume, perfect. How much is the maximum I can recover from? And I'd have a lot of people consider, and if you really listen to a lot of Mike's talks, I don't think he is telling you to do that. I think he's telling you that's the most that you can recover from, meaning you can only recover from it for so long rather than finding the maximum recoverable, let's find the maximum adaptive. So the most work you can do while properly adapting to that volume, so you can actually grow consistently and not burn out. So I kind of dive into my thoughts on that. Um, I do cite him quite a bit. Um, Really, really smart dude. And I I really like the work he's doing. Um, I also dive into um, with intensity and neurologic adaptations. I think a lot of people forget what functional fitness really is from a systemic and level and and what that essentially is is it kind of starts with our nervous system um, our nervous system controls our muscular system our muscular system manipulates our skeletal system so as we go down this ladder, this hierarchy or this, this functional fitness spectrum, we start with the nervous system controlling how our muscles fire and our muscles firing manipulate our joints and our movement patterns. And that's essentially if we don't have unison across the board with our nervous system, our muscles and our joints, we're going to have a tough time building muscle. The next chapter on that in this book is RPE and effort. So RPE stands for rate of perceived exertion. So I talk a little bit about that. I talk a little bit of uh, RIR, so reps in reserve, and I talk a little bit about true effort. Um, If you look at a lot of the research over the years, it, it does show that the most effective volume is within the last five reps, but it is not subject to the last two reps. And what I mean by that is, and there's actually a really cool study that recently came out Um, highly recommend you guys check out jeff nippard's new video on this um recommend you listening to mike israel talk about this on uh steve hall's podcast revive stronger but basically going into the fact that like it kind of started with uh arnold schwarzenegger talking about like those last five reps when you're burning when you want to quit that's those are the reps um he might have even said two and what research shows is the last five reps are usually the most hypertrophic because you're getting closer to failure it might not be exactly five but what it is is it's within a certain intensity and uh, i shouldn't say intensity it's within a certain uh, percentage or proximity of failure so this is why i like staying in an rpe of eight to nine for really 80 to 90% of your training, it means that you usually have one or two left in the tank. Because what they show is that if you go to absolute failure, so if you have zero in the tank, if you go to RPE of 10 all the time, if your effort is going to maximum levels, then you are actually having so much fatigue that your body has to play catch up and you can't perform as much frequency or volume in the long run. So although we might see more short-term hypertrophy in a single session or a single set, from going to failure, we will not see as much hypertrophy from going to failure on a week or monthly basis. So because of that, it's important to understand effort. It's important to understand RPE. It's important to use these tools. And it's important to understand how close to failure you should actually get. Um, Because there's been studies that show going to failure is not a good idea. There's been studies that show failure is a good idea. There's been studies that show people who think they are going to their failure are nowhere near it. Um, a, A specific study showed Uh, athletes putting their 10 rep max on a bench press and trying to perform as many reps as possible with their 10 rep max, meaning they should be able to get 10 reps, right? Well, I believe the lowest count was 16 reps, 16 reps. That was the average. I'm sorry. Uh, The lowest count was 10 to 12 reps, but the average was 16 because some individuals were achieving 20 plus reps. So what that means is that most people underestimate what they can actually do. So going to failure is it bad? Because maybe you're not actually going to failure. This is why actually taking your sets to failure sometimes is, is good because it can teach you what true effort, what maximal effort is because you might not even know what it is for you. And if you've never taken a set to failure or done an AMRAP, I think you should just for the education behind it. Um, however, I, I, I dive deep into the RPE scale. I give some um, – uh, some good sources, uh, from Eric Helms, mass research review, stronger by science, places like that, that really dive deep into the science of RPE. So some exact studies, which are really, really helpful and how I use it with my clients, how you will use it in this program and how to find your personal zone of effort that will be mo- most advantageous for you to see success. After that, I have a full chapter on frequency and training splits. Um, so actually going into the whole frequency concept, um, and what that looks like inside this program. Um, and why it's at the top of the hierarchy for me. After that, I go into intensity techniques. These are really fun things, intensification techniques. And I, and I actually literally break down forced reps, mile reps, supersets, giant sets, drop sets, contrast sets, EMOMs, EDTs, cluster sets, extended sets, like a bunch of different things that you can implement into your training and how you will implement them and when you will implement them into this program. So I think part of understanding good training intensity is knowing when you should push things to closer, closer and closer to failure. And when your biofeedback is good enough to allow for some intensification. So when can we add drop sets? Because drop sets are kind of a bro thing where people are like, oh, it doesn't matter. If volume's equated. You don't need drop sets. They, they don't do well in studies. And they don't. But I don't think they're something that you can repeat and repeat and repeat and expect great results. And if volume is the thing that matters most, it's more like, okay, how can we use these intensification techniques in order to stimulate more total growth via extra volume. That's where the magic happens. And you can't really show that in a study because you would be doing studies for a year long because you're not going to throw these in every session or every week. You probably won't even throw these in more than one session every week. Um, and there's certain times you can do specific things. Like I have a couple of clients I have on an alternating bodybuilding phasic program I call it and every two weeks there's an intensification phase so we spend one week deloading one week ramping up on a normal program and then two weeks intensifying so adding volume doing isometrics doing stretch phases things like that and then we spend another week deloading another week resetting and then a two more two more weeks doing a different intensification so there's ways you can program it but it's so individualized that it's best to do that with a coach or by using a program like this and inside this program you will see how you can adjust your intensification and when you can actually implement these strategies based on your biofeedback and your progression week to week so i actually show you how to do that um, and exact show you exactly how um, and when it's advantageous next we have a full chapter on periodization for aesthetics um and i do break down linear periodization block periodization because i do think it's important so um, there was a recent study that was actually really cool. They reviewed it in, in mass. Um, and honestly, this month's mass research review was unbelievable. One of my favorite ones, they did a lot of really cool studies. I was I was really excited to see Eric Trexler, who I've had on the podcast, join the mass crew. Um, really good guy, really smart individual that I think is a good contribution to them. But they talked about a study. Um, I believe Greg Knuckles reviewed it, but basically showing that periodization did nothing. So when we say periodization we mean there's a few things we could mean like a conjugate style where maybe we have one low rep day for strength one high rep day for hypertrophy so we have a day in like the three fours and fives and then we have a day in the eight nine tens let's say um daily undulated periodization where we might have a strength day speed day and a hypertrophy day so maybe one day five by five one day six by three at a light weight, so you're going for speed and explosive power and then one day at like four sets of eight, nine or 10 at like 70% where we're going for volume and, te- uh, and tension, right? Pure hypertrophy. This didn't show any benefit or advantage compared to a training program that stayed in the same rep range and intensity all week long. Um, they also did it with one that was biweekly. So every two weeks you change it. So two weeks of hypertrophy, two weeks of strength, so on and so forth. And there was no differences by the end of these studies. Um, I believe there were eight week studies, uh, but I highly recommend you go look at it because Everybody interprets research differently, and it's best to go to the experts for that. And Greg Knuckles is an expert at interpreting research like that. Um, However, what I took away from it and what he kind of alluded to was that for hypertrophy, it doesn't really matter much. And you could actually do, like, if you just like staying in the eight to 12 rep range, you could do that every week, every session for years on end, really, and see the same progress as somebody who cycles in a full block of strength and then two blocks of hypertrophy, or is doing a daily undulated periodization fashion where you are doing a session of strength, session of hypertrophy. Um, So that being said, I think there is a place for some type of linear periodization or block periodization, and that's mainly going to be through compound lifts. If you are not progressing your compound lifts, you can't determine if you are getting stronger and a stronger muscle has the potential to become a bigger muscle. So even if you are periodizing in a way that keeps you in the same rep range, so maybe you're not going into sets of five um, and doing a strength block like you would in a block periodization fashion, but maybe you're doing this on a linear basis where you're just trying to improve your eight rep max. That's still a form of periodization. D loads are still a form of periodization. Um, so there is merit to it. And at the end of the day, you have to get stronger along the way. So I kind of use this information that we have about periodization for aesthetics and hypertrophy, and I break it down in a really easy to understand way. So you not only have it in writing of what it means, why it's important, but also how to implement it into your own training and how to implement it with clients. Because One thing I will say about this book is if you're a coach yourself, you don't want to skip out on this book because I teach you everything behind it. Um, And then I kind of dive into auto-regulation. Auto-regulation and biofeedback is just basically the way we can determine the signals our body is giving us through... Mood, motivation, stress, sleep, digestion, performance, fatigue, sex drive, so on and so forth. And then actually auto regulate. So adjust the program automatically based on what your biofeedback is telling you. Now, inside this training program, it does it for you. So you don't have to think too much, but I explain why and educate you behind the importance of this. Um, So when you do this program, you can actually, you'll have a drop down menu to actually literally rank your biofeedback. So you will literally rank how you are feeling. Each day, and that will determine how hard you go in your training. So your training will adapt based on your biofeedback, which is one of the reasons why this is so important to use. Um, and I go into all the different aspects of biofeedback and auto regulation, and then I give you guys a full pre-training mobility and activation circuit. So I literally break down um, exactly what I would suggest doing. So I have a program in here that breaks down mobility and activation per specific lift so you have a different you have the same exact daily warm-up every day which is going to be pretty simple you're going to do uh something to actually dynamically warm you up and get your body moving and then you're going to have specific programmed uh mobility per session so upper body calls for a different mobility than lower body and then we get into actual activation per session so Upper body calls for a different activation. Bench calls for a different activation of overhead press, squat, then deadlift, so on and so forth. It's all different things for different activations, for different muscles to work, different compounds, so on and so forth. Um, and then last but not least, I dive into the actual program and uh, finish with some sources and further reading reading for you guys so you guys can continue to learn and not just from me, but from others who have pioneered some of the studies behind this. So inside this book, you're going to get a lot. Um, there's... There's quite a bit, as you can imagine. Every single topic I just went over is very lengthy. There's full chapters breaking down the ins and outs of everything. So my goal with this is to literally be your last program ever. Um, I might not make another training program for the public ever. and I, And I mean that seriously. And the reason I mean that is because... Especially in the world of fat loss and hypertrophy, this is the last program from Boom Boom Performance that you will literally ever need. Which is probably not the smartest marketing idea on my part, but I wanted to create something that gave you a program that phases in, periodizes, and adjusts over time yourself. You could follow this for six weeks, or you could follow it for six months, or you could follow it for six years. And I, I know that sounds crazy, but I'm being dead serious. Training is is really just a way of figuring out your own personal strength and resistance curves, then progressively overloading those things and just avoiding boredom. I try to make sure that all those things are eliminated by auto-regulation and individualization within this ebook, not only through the actual template program that you Use, adjust, and manipulate over time, but also through the chapters explaining the what, whys, and hows behind everything. So you not only know how to use this program, but you could essentially use this program for your clients. You can use this program for future content. You can use this program for future uh, designing of programs. You can use this for literally anything. You can spin this a million different ways. But this is the most valuable program I've ever launched. I'm really, really excited about it. It launches in a few days, so make sure, guys, September 9th on Monday. It's just a few days away. Be ready for this. It will be on sale the first week only, and I highly encourage everybody to jump on it, Uh, not only because it is the most educational program, but it is the most adaptable and adjustable program you could possibly get that's going to get you the best results ever. Like, I, I really do mean that. And... You're also going to get access to a private group on Facebook where you get access to me. And this is not the normal podcast forum. So this is a group that is solely built and designed just for built for you. So only for the people that are running this program who also have Facebook, because I get a lot of people that buy my programs like, oh, I don't have Facebook. I can't use the group. Well, get a Facebook. Um, But that's the program in a nutshell, guys. I'm really excited. Uh, I know I just spent 30 minutes on that, but I think it's really important for you guys to get some context about what, why, and how inside of it and and why it's going to be so, so amazing. So, um, with that being said, uh, let me pull up Google docs and let's get into a few questions. Let's close the podcast out with these three questions. All right. Sam Hudson, first off, man just gotta thank you for all the quality shit you pump out all real and relatable stuff that genuinely makes people better kudos to you thank you man that means a lot i love i love hearing stuff that i mean if if please do me a favor if you're listening to this and it affects you in any way please just shoot me a dm like like i know that sounds simple or like you may think like oh yeah he won't read it like i literally read every single dm um I'm not that cool and I'm not that popular. So like, honestly, I read all of them and I respond to all of them. And it really does actually mean a lot when I get emails, messages, or DMs saying that this stuff affects you. Um, And obviously, please share the podcast. If you listen to stuff, if you like this stuff, if you enjoy it, like share it, put it on your story, tag me. I want to repost it. I want people to see that people are listening and I want the podcast to grow because it's the easiest way for people to consume information. And it's the easiest way for me to provide information and get people to learn more. Um, That being said, his question literally says that with that being said (laughs) no pun intended what goes into deciding best macros for a client so what goes into the best deciding the best macros for a client like are there particular things you look for such as adherence food sensitivities etc thank you man and keep being the positive dude you are question mark question mark so (laughs) i think you meant exclamation point but it says thank you man and keep being the positive dude you are um it's funny. <laughs> it's so funny how a question mark can change the tone of a tone of voice. Um. Anyway, with that being said, what goes into the be- deciding the best macros for a client? There's so many things that go into this. Um. Number one is going to be where are they at right now. So my number one, I I mean, I guess we can go down the line. Number one is goal, right? What is your goal? I need to know that before I even look at where you where you want to go because if i don't know where you're at i have no clue how to even build a foundation to get you where you want to be um and that's and that's something that's very important for people to understand is like people jump into nutrition coaching and expect their coach to adjust their plans right away or coaches take on clients and adjust the plans right away whether that's creating a deficit or a surplus the reality is is you probably should leave them put If you build a house on a shitty foundation, it's going to crumble. And I believe the same exact theory applies inside of nutrition. The reality of nutrition coaching is is I need a baseline to start from. I need a foundation to start from. That means I need metrics. I need analytics. I need consistency. I need a decent metabolism to work with. I need consistency in macros and calories. I need to know that you are consistently just doing the right simple things that we need over time right so i think building that foundation is first and that comes from me knowing where you're at once once i have a goal and i know where you're at then i can create a baseline so the baseline is going to be almost maintenance i call this the priming phase before i get into the weeds with a client or i start adjusting things i usually like to spend at least two weeks but upwards of six just creating that foundation again we are going to build a house that you want to live on forever it needs to be set on a good foundation How do you expect to not only build but sustain a home on a shitty foundation? You can't. So therefore, how do you expect to build and sustain a great diet and a physique if you have a horrible foundation? Your fat loss will come a lot easier in the future. Your muscle growth, your performance, digestibility, stress, your uh, metabolism, all these things will improve over time and, and just sustain better if we do that on top of a great foundation. So usually what I like to do is spend a solid two to six weeks, I say six, which sounds pretty high. But there's times where I can take it to six weeks. Um, It just depends on the individual where I just build consistency. It's like, hey, let's leave you around maintenance calories. Let's get you on a macronutrient ratio that actually makes sense for your performance levels your type of training, your goals, your muscle mass, your fat, um, what foods tend to work best with you, what foods you crave, so on and so forth. And once we build that foundation, one of two things happens. Either A, the consistency in the better macro ratio usually leads to weight loss without even going into a deficit, or it leads to muscle growth because their performance and their stress are is managed better um, without going into a surplus. But either way, we're at maintenance and we're improving. And then from there... We can start tweaking because now we have that foundation built. They have consistency under their belt, and I can start tweaking things to enhance the result we are seeing. Um, and then from there, obviously, they're like the little things. Kind of, it just depends. Um, yes, adherence. Yes, food sensitivities. But the reality is, food sensitivities are are something that can be easily managed. Um, if somebody has gut health issues, I might go with a more FODMAP approach. Um, I might go a little bit outside of what is just on the FODMAP list, but foods that I know work well with ninety percent or more of people, while limiting i don't want to say eliminate because it's not good to completely eliminate foods at least not for a long period of time but i might actually cut back some uh some foods that i think might be problematic inside the gut because if their gut stressed everything else is stressed um, but we just build consistency we build that priming phase we build a metabolism we build a foundation and then we can build from there and when when i say from there that's when we get into macronutrient tweaks possible carb cycling possible diet breaks and refeeds start to actually periodize the plan, um, supplementation, so on and so forth. But what goes into deciding the best macros for a client at a start is gonna be their goal and then where they're at right now. Are they under eating? Are they overeating? Are they currently at maintenance? How much training do they do? right so like the more training you do the more high carb i'm going to go um, how sedentary are you? the higher fat i'm going to go um, do they have a lot of body fat on their body because even if they train in something like crossfit or they do a lot of endurance based stuff that might be glycolytic let's say they're doing high intensity stuff great but if you have 60 70 pounds of body fat tissue to lose i might not drive carbs up because i, I want to put you in a big deficit i want your body to be forced to use those fats as fuel And that doesn't come from loading up carbs. It comes from restricting carbs, depleting carbs, and letting their body start tapping into fat stores and potentially having a higher fat diet so that their body gets used to only using fat for fuel for the most part, and then just giving them periodic refeeds. So there's a lot of things that go into it, but it solely depends on where are you at right now? Where is your goal? What can you best adhere to? And where do we stand after the foundation is built? I honestly think that's probably a... About as detailed as I can get without asking what's your job? How how, <laughs> how many hours of sleep do you get? What's your goal? What do you weigh? What's your height? So on and so forth. So um and, and I would say too, is like one thing I, I left out that I probably should mention is uh metabolic history. So what kind of diets did you do in the past? Usually I get this information when I talk to a client on the phone the first time. I'm I'm really going in depth with like, okay, what have you tried in the past? What diets work, what diets in, how long did you diet? How long have you been at maintenance? Have you ever done a maintenance phase? How, how accurate were you tracking those metrics? Because now I can determine like, were you actually in a deficit? How long were you in a deficit? How well does your body respond to a deficit? How big of a deficit? And then you can kind of determine their levels of metabolic adaptation, be that good or bad. And I don't mean the metabolic adaptation in a bad way. I mean, it in, in like the actual definitive way. What type of adaptation do we see? Are you a highly adaptive metabolism person? Are you a person who has a very low adaptability to to metabolic changes? Like basically saying, do you need to be aggressive with the deficits to make them work, or do you need to be? Can you get away with a conservative deficit, or is it a time thing? So for some people, results right away, right? But you need to make that big jump, or results right away, and it's a sl- and it's a slow and steady grind, or for some people, you got to put them a deficit nothing happens for two weeks but after two weeks they slowly start losing their body is just resilient it just takes time so you have to be patient so as much information as i can get about their past all right ron alcott my question so he kind of gave me a brief rundown of uh, who he was what he's doing um basically he's 48 years old he's been lifting very consistently um he's done a physique competition uh so on and so forth my question is in regards to how I need to approach my training to try and add lean mass in order to be more competitive in physique competitions. I've been listening to your podcast as well as Mike Matthews, Eric Trexler, Eric Helms, et cetera. Great list. I'm honored to be on that. Uh, should I use the progressive overload approach doing four to six rep sets and alternate every two to three weeks with a hypertrophy round of eight to 10 reps for two, three weeks? Or should I focus mainly on sticking to one concept and dropping in weeks off de- of deloads or rest? Um, I definitely don't think you should alternate that dramatically every two to three weeks. So basically what I told him was kind of like what I described at the beginning of this podcast when explaining the periodization inside of aesthetics with the ebook um, and how they had that new research review uh, inside of mass talking about essentially it doesn't really matter. Like you could do uh, you could do two to three weeks of the four to six, six rep range and then you could do two to three. Uh, two three weeks of the eight to ten rep range and you could alternate those or you could do six weeks straight of eight to ten rep range and then six weeks straight of four to six or you could just stick to one of those rep ranges the whole entire time if volume is equated you are golden which i think it's important for people to realize they think well you know four sets of eight to ten is going to be more volume because that's more reps that, is, that doesn't necessarily mean more volume it's easier to accumulate volume in those rep ranges because your nervous system doesn't get as fatigued and it doesn't take as long. So you could do four sets of eight to 10 and you could do eight sets of four. You could get the same volume with that because your eight sets of four are at a heavier load. And technically, volume is reps times sets times weight. So when you do that equation with either scenario, the volume actually equates out, which is why it's easy to do this in research. However, what we notice inside research is that doing eight sets of four versus four sets of eight, the, the heavy low rep, and there's not studies with those exact rep ranges, I'm just speaking in an example, but those low rep heavy sets do a little bit more damage on the nervous system. You get a little more systemic fatigue. It makes it harder to continue those trainings and it takes longer. You got to take longer rest periods. You got to do more warm up sets. You're just in the gym for a longer period. So it's easier to accumulate total volume by doing sets of eight to 10 over time, um, which is why it typically works better that way. Um, But again, if volume is equated, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. So I probably would go with... um, whatever you like honestly that that's kind of what that boils down to it kind of comes down to the point of there is no shock the body right you did four to six reps for a while and then boom you hit it with eight to ten you shock the system it's like no like it just recognizes volume um and we've seen that muscle damage is a proxy for growth because i think there is merit to say that if you have muscle damage you have soreness your body is rebuilding tissue but there's also uh science that shows it's just going to increase muscle protein synthesis which actually was shown in the study the group doing more uh variation actually saw more muscle protein sim- synthesis stimulated however there was no significant growth there was the growth was same so what does that tell us well it tells us that there was probably more muscle damage because there was more variation in the rep ranges so it caused more breakdown but the muscle protein synth- synthesis being spiked up and elevated was just And there's nothing that says this is true, but most likely it was just because um, the body was working on rebuilding current tissue, not rebuilding new tissues. So it doesn't completely paint the picture to say, oh, you were more soared when you alternated reps. So that's better for growth. Not really. Um, And there's plenty of bodybuilders who are massive that have been doing 12 to 20 reps for eternity. And there's a bunch of huge power lifters that have been doing three to six reps for eternity. So volume is volume. Um, the best way to go is whatever you allows you to progress long term and allows you to have the most fun. So the 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 two best scenarios, in my opinion, are having about two-thirds or one-fourth th- of your training being low rep if your goal is hypertrophy. And that's how I have the ebook structure and I explain exactly why. But essentially that's the the reason for this is simple. If you do a little bit, so one-third or one-fourth of your volume in that low rep range, you're still getting that nervous system adaptation, which is going to carry over long-term. might not be able to be seen in an eight-week study, but we can show from experience and from some science that this does help recruit more motor units, more muscle fibers. It helps you get stronger, period. So if you progressively overload and get stronger in the lower rep range, that means you have a stronger muscle, which is a bigger muscle, and those 8s, 10s, and 12s are probably going to be able to be done with more total load therefore you increase your load you increase your volume so over time it does make sense eight weeks is a very short-term study to show serious strength progression especially in an advanced lifter but in my opinion um if you're doing so the best way to do it i would say is either uh like if you're doing an upper lower split every other session is strength or even better for hypertrophy every third session so you would do either a Upper lower, upper lower, upper lower, or you would just go upper lower every week. And then next week you have a strength block. So basically, this would be like uh first two upper lowers are higher rep hypertrophy, second two upper lowers are higher rep hypertrophy, the third two upper lowers, so the last two upper lowers of each microcycle are strength based, low rep. And you can do that on a weekly or a biweekly basis. Um, but that's how that's how I would go. It, it's using experience, it's using some of the research of what we know, but it's also letting you know, hey you're not going to shock the muscle. You don't have to change up too much. You don't have to worry about it too much. The only time they see have seen a big difference in like this whole quote unquote shock the muscle thing was in a study, I believe it was weightlifters. And they use it in the example of this research, but basically saying that these weightlifters, so Olympic lifters uh, doing like Olympic lifts, they saw a huge difference in muscle growth when changing to a high volume phase. But it was because they literally either have never done or they haven't done it in years. And I think they said like probably like three plus years. They haven't done a phase of hypertrophy training like that. So – it was a shock because they've never done that. It's been that long. So yes, there is merit to that, but you need to spend at least a year doing the same thing before changing it up dramatically like that has a significant effect. Uh, but there's something to say about boredom. If you do the same thing for too long, you get bored. And if you get bored, you're not motivated. If you're not motivated, you're not going to push yourself. Um, I think I already answered this question by accident but he had a second question that said also when you talk about overall load for a workout routine you discuss reps times sets times weight if that calculation is say three thousand for a heavy week four to six reps per set does that correspond equally to the same calculation if i'm doing eight to ten reps per set with lighter weights i'm basically asking if they would be equally effective if the load calculation is relatively the same exactly that is exactly what research shows um like i mentioned to you in the email because i did email him back and give him a, a brief paragraph of like what i think and then i told him i'd answer it in more depth here um it is that way i don't think that's the best way to go about it for long term because i think there are physiological adaptations that happen from both rep ranges so i do think there is merit to varying them um, to an extent Um, so i wouldn't go all lightweight and just be like oh volume's equated you're good all right last question is from shelby jones underscore ns with your recent podcast about hypertrophy nutrition, if someone was hanging out at maintenance for a while and wanted to start putting on some muscle mass, I learned how to figure out my calories. Thank you. But I am, am I correct in thinking that you'd give them that extra three to 10% calorie increase all at once or, and not gradually go up like a reverse. So this really, really depends on the individual, like most things, but um, the first thing I'm, I'm wondering is again, like, like we talked about with deciding somebody's macros, how adaptive is your metabolism? So, um, I have a couple of people in mind. I have one person that I put in a very small surplus. I mean, I'm talking, we added like hundred calories and slowly, but surely we've been gaining weight. Like I think he's gained in between a half a pound to a pound a month for the last six months. And we take progress pictures every week. He's staying lean, keeping his abs. We just getting bigger and getting stronger very, very slow grind. But why would we change anything? It's working. And it's a very small conservative approach. Um, He doesn't have a very adaptive metabolism, um, which is good. And I have another person who he does have a very adaptive metabolism. So I would bump his calories up, say 100, he would not gain a thing because his metabolism would adapt so quick, or he would gain a pound and then drop right back down. Um, so then I end, I, you know, I bring his calories up, his carbs up to 400 grams. And he's not gaining any weight. And I'm like, fuck dude, you're at 400 grams. You're at tons of fat, plenty of protein. You're eating tons of food. We're not gaining any size. We have to get aggressive with this. So he has a highly adaptive metabolism. So for him, I should have done this right at the beginning, but I, I waited, which is fine. Cause I built up his metabolic capacity, essentially his metabolic ceiling. So now he can maintain on more food, which I think is a good thing. But um, I threw on a a good amount of carbs, and boom, he started gaining weight. Like, I mean, I I added that ten percent, like ten to fifteen percent calorie increase. Like, let's just get after it. We'll spend you know eight to twelve weeks just building muscle on this, maintain, and then do a mini cut and repeat. And we're getting ready to go in our mini cut next week because we've maintained his uh 185 pounds for the last four weeks. Uh, but he started at like 174, 175. So we've gained a solid 10 pounds, put on a little bit of fat, obviously, but. We had to get that aggressive because he had such a highly adaptive metabolism. So the first thing I'm wondering about this question is like, well, I might take a very slow, gradual approach, like a reverse, if I'm worried about them gaining fat, if they don't have a highly adaptive metabolism and they didn't respond well uh, to the diet going down, so on and so forth, or if it's a person that has a very highly adaptive metabolism and I feel safe in a reverse diet setting where I can bump up calories and they're not going to gain weight, I'm going to get aggressive because the goal is to gain weight. So that that kind of determines it. The other thing that determines it is experience level. So for an individual who is a newbie, I can arguably say, hey, a 3% gain is fine because any surplus is going to be great for you because you're a newbie. You're going to gain a ton of muscle. But I also say, like, let's take advantage of the newbie phase and let's add a good amount of calories and put you in a surplus and train hard and crank volume up so you can recover because you, you're you in a newbie phase. So hormones are high. Metabolism is high. like Muscle tissue is soaking up nutrients like a sponge like let's just grow. Um and I'd probably go with a more aggressive approach. Um as a person gets more and more advanced, the likelihood of them building muscle at all decreases. So this goes one of two ways. Number one, you're going to have slow progress anyway, so you can get away with saying, "Hey, I'm going to spend longer doing a gaining phase and I'm going to take a smaller uh increase in calories because I'm not going to gain a ton of muscle mass." Either or you're extremely advanced you do want to cycle in mini cuts and bulks and we do have to take a more aggressive approach because you're one of those people that is so advanced that hey you're gonna have to gain some fat because it's the only way we're gonna get your body actually growing period and there are there is some research it's not very conclusive but there is some research that might make us believe like hey it might be advantageous to actually put on a little bit of body fat while trying to gain size. Like it does benefit us. Um, so it really, really depends. It depends on the person's history. depends on the person's uh, experience, depends on the person's current training goals and body size and how fast their metabolism typically is with adaptation. Um, the last thing I'll add is there's some really cool research going on. Um, showing, uh, that, that is on this. I believe Eric Helms is in charge of it. I think Brad Dieter is in it. I know Mike Matthews is actually funding it, um, with Legion. So the really cool guys going into it. Um, and it's, it's basically about lean gaining. And I think there's, there's a few studies that are like good. They're not amazing. Cause there's some things that could have been improved based on what I heard. Cause I don't know the studies very, very closely. Uh, but, uh, there is a study that showed, two groups of people one was like a very conservative slow gaining approach one was like a fast approach so they had a registered dietitian actually give them a meal plan that added 600 calories a day and then the other group was like very very small um i think it was a more of an intuitive plan like hey just eat to build muscle so i don't know if they had a specific amount of calories they were supposed to increase but it was a very small amount so they barely added any calories to these people when they looked at the calories equated at the end and the group that did a very conservative small increase in calories built the same amount of muscle as the group that uh, added 600 calories. The group that had 600 calories added five times more fat, like a good, I, I want to say it was five, maybe more, but I'm pretty sure it was five times more body fat than the group that did a small approach. So the same amount of muscle was built, except the group that did a, a bigger surplus gained way more fat, five times more fat. And the performance measurements so the strength outcomes of both groups were exactly the same, which tells us that we don't need a crazy surplus to build muscle or gain strength technically, there's always caveats to everything. But I think going above 10% is unnecessary. I think going below 3% is probably just too little for most people, um, unless they have a very, very adaptive metabolism. And we just have to shock the system a little bit to try to get over that hump, which is does happen. Um, But in most cases, especially with natural lifters, I'm a much bigger fan of taking a lean gain approach. Um, I think it's safer. I think it's better for health. I think it's just as effective. I think it just takes longer to see the actual scale move, which should not be the number one proxy for success. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering. And because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomperformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation To shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at Cody at BoomBoomPerformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.